Hello, this is Matt Kennedy. Welcome to Pod Sequentialism. And um, on this week's episode, it's kind of a great follow-up to um, the last shows that we've done um, centering on the art fairs and about women working in comics. And I have with my with me my special guest, Tevi Koo. Hey! <laughs> Tevi's my assistant at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, but she also um, creates her own comic books and zines. And they're very much action um, oriented comics and with a little bit of a manga flair to them, but really kind of their own thing. And I think most people that are familiar with some of the new zine culture that's coming up in Los Angeles and especially out of the art schools, that the illustration from women tends to be more of the kind of underground fantagraphics type of I guess lifestyle comics, and that's not what you do. You do action, like battle, <laughs> yeah. fighting, amazing, you know, speaking to the choir on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, tell me what inspires you to do what you do and give us a little bit of a history. Um, I think it probably comes from uh, growing up with a very Chinese Cambodian dad, and he'll tell me really good stories about how he was in Cambodia and like that war happened, and mm-hmm. now he had to work on a farm and like he had to survive by eating like a rat liver or something like that. And he has a lot of great stories like that. And um, like, that's, that's a like, tough guy. That's a, good, yeah. that's a good hero to start with. <laughs> yeah. My dad. Oh. Nice. But um, I grew up like watching X-Men and reading comic books with my brothers and like Walking Dead and uh, watching Justice League and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's been like really influential in like mo- movies, like ultra violent movies horror movies and a lot of stuff especially since i know quite a few people uh from southeastern asia that aren't from china but the influence of hong kong movies and (laughs) chinese dramas pervades vietnamese television um probably certainly cambodian television um singaporean like you name it like any place in the in the region that isn't necessarily korea or japan has a lot of chinese cultural influence by way of their incredible movie market and so a lot of times it will be subtitled or dubbed but you'll be seeing these kind of chushingara type dramas and um a lot of wire battle soap opera type stuff so did your dad ever bring that stuff home was he watching that stuff (laughs) yeah so that's like that's a really good jump off point for following action yeah a lot of the people that work in action-oriented comics have a huge love for like the john woo hong kong films and the terence chang productions and directors like ringo lamb and then later you know tony lao and um and Johnny Toe, who's probably the king of, of Hong Kong cinema overall, Chewy Hark, that type of stuff. So did that Asian cultural influence read into the way that you set up action from panel to panel, or did that come more or less from American comic books? I'm probably, um, I think a lot of... Like Bruce Lee movies come to mind. Like yeah, your drawing. characters yeah. do look like Bruce. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's like our like mascot or something. Um, my dad would also bring. He would go to Japan sometimes and bring mm-hmm. back like manga, but he wouldn't know. Like he wouldn't open them. Like right. he would just think like, oh, it's just like a cartoon. And he'd give it to us. Yeah. And a lot of times, like really violent and sexual <laughs> stuff. The same thing. We've talked about this. The same thing happened. My sister was stationed in Okinawa when she was in the Air Force. Um, just this would be 
good Lord, how long ago was that? I'm not going to tell. But it was in the early and mid-80s, and she would send back Jump Magazine, which was like a telephone book-sized manga you know (laughs) it was a month and it was a monthly so this thing got produced monthly i can't even imagine what being an editor at jump magazine was like (laughs) but it was about two inches thick and it had a variety of different i would imagine cultural reports and different strips that ran and some of them were extremely sexualized and there were reprints of older manga sometimes in with the newer manga which i didn't realize was even a thing at the time in japan and so you'd come across a comic that might have, like the cover might be a swimsuit model, and then you'd open it, and it would have something that looked like Captain Harlock. And I could not read Japanese at the time, and I can barely read Japanese now. But the variety of story was that I would make up what I was looking at, just make it be whatever I wanted. And one of the things was like a boy love comic where the characters all look like Oliver, and I became fascinated with this woman's artwork and found out later that it was a woman that was writing it and and illustrating it. But that disconnect of receiving things that are supposed to tell stories that you may not be familiar with is kind of incredible because you probably did the same thing. You're like, I'm going to make up my own story (laughs) for this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they're all in Japanese. Like, I don't, why did my dad bring this home? There's like (laughs) scary, like nightmares, like shit in it. Yeah, yeah, like off off the hook. And I can imagine that when you were a kid, which would have been 25 years probably <laughs> after uh, I was a kid, that the – or maybe even later. No, it was about, probably about 20, 25 years ago that the the culture got even more extreme to an extent. So what type of stuff – do you do you know the, the titles that you were looking at then? Did you find out later what they were? I never knew. I think my brother just got really scared of it and just threw it in a box and like it was never seen again. Stuffed but, it um, under the bed, threw yeah. it in the closet. But I got really into um, Battle Royale. Yeah. The, their mangas are really good. Yeah, and of course an incredible movie that took years yeah. to come to the United States, even though we were trying to license it like from the first screening forward. The which is sort of interesting that now James Gunn has a new movie coming out, the um the Belco experiment, which seems to be Battle Royale meets The Office, which is a good way to go with that, I think. And we'll, we'll talk about that on a different podcast coming up for sure. That's that's going to be opening in March, I believe. And everybody should go see it. It looks amazing. So you have this kind of box of bizarrely inappropriate Japanese <laughs> manga that your dad picked up for you. And it scared the hell out of your brother. And you're like, I'll take that. I'll pull yeah. that box. It's like the cat, you know, pulling the food away from the other cat. And so you're you're looking at this stuff, and what was it that really hit you at, up at first? Um, I think uh, just like how extreme, like how extreme the artist is like willing to go. Because before that, I had never seen that. Like it was just normal comic books, like, mm-hmm. boom, kapow, and then this is ha- this has like like scary, gross monsters and a lot of nudity, like really detailed, veiny, like wieners or something, yep. like heads coming off <laughs> yeah yeah that that kind of urtsukadoji <laughs> type stuff that everybody knows the giant tentacled beasts which is a just a bizarre aspect of of anime and and then crossed over into manga i think it well i guess it would have started in manga and then got an anime and the um i mean the really shocking stuff that was coming over in in the early 90s 
which we, we started calling Artsukidoji Wandering Kid. I don't know where that came from. And then there was La Blue Girl and some of the other really extreme, violent, pornographic stuff. I think it clicked specifically with American kids because parents didn't really pay too much attention to what cartoons kids were bringing home. And the only adult cartoon that any adult knew about, if they even knew about it, was Fritz the Cat, you know, from the <laughs> 1970s. So looking at this Japanese stuff, it might not be apparent from the cover what was in it. Although I th if I remember, I think even the covers of those VHS boxes had nudity on them. But I mean, it's not like they give you the original package. You get like a videotape and a plastic box back in the day and you take it home. Now I'm, now I'm really dating myself here, <laughs> the video store experience of 1986. But... Um, so looking at that, when were you, were you starting to copy what you're seeing in drawing or were you completely drawing other stuff and this kind of was just one other aspect of, of frame or panel design? I was totally um, copying like a lot of manga at first. Mm -hmm. um, and um, like looking at a lot of their panels, like how are they telling the story? How are they like what order is this supposed to go in? Mm -hmm that's like really difficult on top of just drawing and like trying to like get the story and the plot together. Yeah. yeah. There was a huge push when manga was first being translated into English and being published. And of course the first stuff was being turned into comic book, American comic book size and serialized. So after Frank Miller did Ronin, which is his take on Lone Wolf and Cub, there were a few titles at Eclipse Comics and Ronin was DC, but at Eclipse, Frank Miller had handpicked a couple of titles for them to publish. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that Cat Ironwood, who had been someone at Fanagraphics, was now at Eclipse. And I might have that wrong, and I apologize if I am. Somebody please email me and let me know. That there was Kamui, which was the story of a, of a lone samurai, like a, a teenage samurai. And there was My the Psychic Girl. And they were very different types of of manga and very different from everything in American comics. And the attempt to bring those pages to the U.S. market was a, a learning experience. That they would just scan the page and they would, you know, white out the dialogue and somebody would, would write new dialogue and yeah, ostensibly Frank Miller, I guess, and people who were working to do these translations of this Japanese stuff and tell it in an American way, sometimes incredibly not faithful to the source material except for the, the visuals. And often because of the right to left storytelling mechanic in Japanese manga, following the story could be difficult. And at some point they realized it would be better to flip everything completely and have it then formatted the way that you would read it left to right. So it would be like a mirror image of what appeared in the Japanese manga as the American comic. But then purists decided when they started, like companies like Viz started setting up um, like – Appleseed and, and some of the titles that became really popular, uh, which that went from being published as an American comic book into just a translated American manga, digest-sized manga. And people were like, you know what? We, we can we can deal with making people read right <laughs> yeah. to left. They should get it mm -hmm. at this point that you can do that, that that's okay. It's not that hard to do. So in the era that you grew up, were you also 
going out and buying like translated manga? Were you were you reading that type of stuff, or were you just buying American comic books, or were you not buying it? And it was just something that was around. No, um, me and my brother would go out to comic book stores and get um, both like American comics, like Green Lantern. A lot of mm-hmm. we read a lot of Green Lantern and uh, Superman. Um, but we were also reading stuff like Initial D, mm-hmm. um, like translated versions, of course. Yeah. Um, so at home, like we had this like the entire volume of Initial D. The car manga, yeah, that was a big deal. I remember that I think Johnny Toe produced a Japanese Hong Kong co-production live action of Initial yeah. D mm-hmm. back in, oh, I was at AFM. I remember when they were they were pitching it probably 2004 or five. I think, like right around there. And then I think it came out a year later with an international cast, you know, that the appeal of drift driving took off, of course, first in Asia. And it, it was a few years later that uh, the the Vin Diesel Fast and the Furious movies became kind of a thing. And they even made one that was, you know, Tokyo Drift, which is sort of outside the continuity. But uh, this is a good place to take a break. And we'll hear a word from one of our lovely sponsors. And we encourage people who want to reach this prime demographic to contact us. You can contact Mason, Mason at MeltComics.com. You can also send an email to me at info at popsequentialism.com. But it's always, I think, best to just reach out through social media. So you can contact us at, at podsec through Twitter and Instagram or you know podsequentialism page on Facebook. And we'll be really quick and swift about getting back to you, answering your questions, and uh, working on a way to get your message to my people. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am talking today with Tevi Koo, who is a art, a recent Art Center graduate who draws and writes her own comics and zines, and they're very much action oriented, fight drama type comics. They're really great. Uh, I thought this would be a great uh, episode for this particular weekend because this is the weekend that Printed Matter has the LA Fine Art Book Fair going on down at the in Little Tokyo at the Museum of Contemporary Arts David Geffen Center. So it's right next to the Japanese American Museum uh, in Little Tokyo. And it's it's an amazing party if you go to it. There's always DJs and bands playing, but inside is it is my favorite art-oriented fair of the year. It's all publication. Last year, um, my wife and I bought a few original um, Polaroids from several very prominent Japanese photographers at a portion, like a almost a percentage of what their large format photography costs. And of course, with a Polaroid, you have an addition of one. You have something that is absolutely unique. And they were signed and they were great. So, you know, Daido Moriyama, Tokyo Romando, uh, if you like Japanese photography, these are some of the biggest names out there. So talking with Tevi, we're talking about the influence of manga and American comics and being in a... You're you're first generation American in your family. Yeah. (laughs) So your parents emigrated here mm-hmm. your dad from the killing fields of cambodia yeah. and you know hang noir who was the oscar nominated actor from the movie the killing fields survived 
all of the Pol Pot regime and escaping through Vietnam and making it to America eventually after helping other people get out of the country only to be killed in a parking garage in Southern California for uh, sleeping with a gangster's girlfriend. And it's, it's kind of an amazing statement on how ridiculous things can be. But the, the Cambodian population at large in Los Angeles is mainly in Long Beach. Yeah. And there's a, a, it's a, a large pocket population. And while there's a lot of different parts of Southeastern Asian culture throughout the San Gabriel Valley and El Monte and South El Monte, the, um, the pocket population of Cambodians in Long Beach means that there's Cambodian television in Long Beach, yeah. like local mm-hmm. access stations, the way that there are Russian stations in West Hollywood, Armenian stations in Hollywood and Glendale, like three or four of them, and um, you know Tokyo um, subscription cable stations. I don't think there's any public access. I think it's a split station in most uh, areas these days. Um, throughout Los Angeles. So that cultural influence, being first generation, being the first, uh, your brother and, your brother's how much older? Um, my, I have two brothers. One's like one year older and the other one's six years older than me. Okay, so and how old are you? I'm 27. 27. So that's an interesting time to be, you know, first generation American, and especially now. You know, yeah. we're looking at a real, a real difference in, you know, post-election and people's attitudes um, across the country about um, what I think is really simple stuff, but apparently is getting complicated for people. Um, and without getting political, there, there has been a shift. There has been a shift in the safety net around ethnic communities. Now, in a way, it's fortunate to be from Southeast Asia and not to be from the Middle East right now. <laughs> But certainly that wasn't always the case. And 35 years ago, there was a lot of still pretty fresh um, discrimination against people from Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. And to be in Long Beach, not to be out in Westminster where there was an established Vietnamese community and to be Cambodian, it's there's like you're not only not the same as the the Caucasian community that existed before, and there's those hassles to go through. You're also not the same as the other pocket Asian community that's been here just a little bit longer. And so what was that experience like growing up? It was like um, I started noticing that if you were – uh, like a light-skinned Asian, you were definitely treated differently than if you're a brown Asian. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh, I feel like a lot of Cambodians, like that's why we probably identify more with the black community or like the Latin community a lot. Yeah, more than the Vietnamese community for some reason. No, it's it's that's completely valid. And, and of course, we've seen with the rise of Korean culture in the United States and in fascination with K-pop that there is a division. There's that... Um, sort of gorgeous, beautiful, very stylized, very pale Korean female superstars and male superstars. And then there's people like, you know, like David Cho, you know, who grew up in in Korea, right outside of Koreatown in Los Angeles, and very much identifying with the African-American community that was the next neighborhood over down in Wilshire at the time. And with the Mexican culture that was all around 
Silver Lake, Los Feliz, Echo Park, those other areas, Pico Union. And that identification is an amazing cross-pollination of culture. What I'm unfamiliar with, and of course it has to exist, and if it doesn't, that means that you have to start it because, you know, that's the rule of the internet. I'm not familiar with a lot of Cambodian hip-hop. Oh. But I've heard a lot of Cambodian psychedelic esoteric music from the 60s and 70s weaving its way into a lot of standard American hip hop. And even Japanese DJ hip hop is using elements of Southeast Asian music, not just Japanese jazz, which is what I think the thing was with DJ Shadow and and a few of those cats uh, not too long ago. So what's the music and mix of culture that also gives rise to this first-generation Cambodian-American experience in Los Angeles and specifically Long Beach? There's, I feel like, I don't know their names, but I've heard a lot of Cambodian rappers um, just kind of like making DIY mixtapes. I mean, like, besides, but not on the same level as like a band like Dengue Fever. Yeah. Uh, Dengue Fever, for people who don't know, is a very popular sort of modern psychedelic band that's been... Huge in Los Angeles for years. They do annual shows at specific venues that get sold out in, you know, 12 hours and that type of thing. And I've had friends, my friends in KO Dot have played shows with with Dengue Fever. And and depending upon who was more popular at the time in different cities have toured and played together and, and, and swapped positions. But certainly, yeah, there's a... There's got to be that DIY, you know, kind of b-boy street movement thing. Snappers and poppers, like all the all the great snappers and poppers that I've ever seen, were either Vietnamese or, or Cambodian. I mean, like mind blowing. Like, oh my god, that's amazing. And and a lot of people who wind up on, you know, America's Best Dance Crew. There's a lot of people from Long Beach. Long Beach is one of those yeah. one of those crews that, that that does really well. So what what's what have you noticed? What have you seen? Um, I remember going to like Homeland, which is like a sort of this meeting spot in this library. I don't know if the library is actually called Homeland. They just call it Homeland. Yeah. Um, but a lot of like breakdancers would go there and my oldest brother was in a breakdancing and at Cal State Long Beach, they would like go breakdancing there. I mm-hmm. can't dance. <laughs> yeah. Definitely can't breakdance. Um, uh, but it's, it's been a while it's, since it's, I've done a dive and done done the reverse worm on a, a piece of linoleum on a sidewalk myself. So I wouldn't even attempt it now. I'd probably crack my back in half. But um, yeah, lots of Cambodians. Yeah, tons of them can dance. Yeah. <laughs> I just I don't have that gene. I guess <laughs> <laughs> you missed out on that. Well, the. I guess where do you find that transition? in absorbing all of this aspect and then of of established culture from your heritage and then new American culture. And what was the, when you decided, when you told your parents, hey, I want to go to art school, what was, what was their response? They were pretty cool about it. Um, but I guess my parents might be a little bit different than the stereotypical, like, uh, really strict Asian parents because they're both, uh, musicians. They're both singers. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they don't do that as much now. Mm-hmm. So growing up, like music was really important and they bought me a guitar and wanted me to learn how to sing, play piano, but I'm not really all that great at any of those things. It's like their dream. But, um, but I remember telling them like, I want to be a tattoo artist. And they're like, no, <laughs> like no tattoos. But everyone in my family has a tattoo at this point. Yeah. But, um, I was like, fine, I'm going to go to an art school. Like, oh, okay. And they didn't really, uh, weren't, they, I don't think they knew like how 
important that was to me until I graduated. Right. And like maybe like a family friend told them like, oh, that's a good art center is a good school. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. That what we've talked about that on the show before, too, that a lot of Chinese immigrants and to a lesser extent Japanese, there's not a lot of Japanese at art center. There's some, but there's a lot of Chinese and a lot of Korean students. And the fame of art center in Korea and in China is such that for parents who are very strictly connected to status and want to be able to say, oh, my child is a doctor or a lawyer, if you don't have that career, the next brag is the school they go to. It's like, oh, they're at UCLA <laughs> or oh, they're at Harvard. And so the for art school, there's really a handful of art schools that are known in Asia, and Art Center is definitely one of them. Art Center and Otis, I think, are more well-known than SVA, than CalArts, than a lot of the schools that you might think of as like the MFA havens for for fine artists. But these illustration schools are very well-known because, of course, illustration is very (laughs) respected in Asia. So the, uh, the cultural aspect of attending a school with a lot of now other... Asian culture and being an American who looks Asian has got to be a pretty interesting experience too. Yeah. Um, I think one of the first experiences I had with that was, um, it was during orientation. I had my sunglasses on Mm -hmm. and the sun was going down. So I took them off and this Korean girl was like, Oh, you have such pretty eyes. Like, Oh, thanks. And then she goes like, yeah, like you actually have eyelids. Like, what? Wait, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> like, I don't get what you're saying. She's like, you know, like, you have, like, an eyelid. I was like, everybody has eyelids. <laughs> and there's this, like, weird back and forth, like, oh, okay. Oh, right. Like, it's that whole mono, like, monolids are an attractive sort of culture that she's kind of coming from. And there's surgeries. Yeah. So a lot of pop stars and actors, Jackie Chan had a surgery in the late 70s after doing Drunken Master 1 to become a bigger star, to have more broad appeal across the continent, and it succeeded. It helped launch him ahead of other Chinese martial artists who didn't have the um, the fold. And the appeal among Korean pop stars, a lot of Korean pop stars are getting those surgeries, which is, it's bizarre to me that that this is still a thing, but I mean, it's every culture has its kind of bizarre MacGuffin type of strangeness that we adhere to, that we find certain things attractive and certain things not attractive. Hey, the Viceland is filled with that stuff. You know, we can watch Thomas go and and drink vast bowls of yogurt and eat grain and throw up. But um, everybody in your family is artistic. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, you have an older brother who's a performance artist. Oh, Brian? Um no, I, I think he's in between jobs. I have no idea what he does yeah. now. Um, my brother, Kenny's, um, he's trying to break into acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of, you know, of the arts, I guess. I mean, talent is, is a really, it's a objective word. But, um, or I guess it's not, it's more of a subjective word. But there's a inclination within your family to gravitate towards artistic things and having parents who were were musicians probably did make it easier. So you're at Art Center 
How many years did you go? Three? Uh, four. You went yeah. four. Okay, you did the, you did the right thing. <laughs> it's like take that extra year or take a couple of semesters yeah. off to be able to absorb what you're what you're learning. And I feel like when people rush through and do the three-year thing that they're missing out on on what they're paying for, which is to learn, let it set in, and see what you're going to go with it. So after graduating last year. Um, in, yeah, well, 2014. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's two, yeah, two, 2014. It's 2017 now. This is crazy. <laughs> so the um, after graduating and getting out into the world with an art degree, what was that post graduation experience? Oh man, it was uh, like, I mean, really nice not to, really nice to be able to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also like really scary. I'm like. Shit, what am I going to do now? Like, am I going to do freelancing? Am I going to get like an actual job or mm-hmm. a job that's like non-art? And then um, I started uh, doing the comic books for uh, like through a friend of a friend, the Danger Wolf comic books. Yeah. Is the first thing that I started doing. And I kind of didn't really think of about it that much. I just thought of it as another job. Mm-hmm. But then when I finished, I was like, yeah. Yeah, I kind of really, really like doing comic books. Like I liked reading them when I was growing up and doing them, and I like telling stories and drawing. So that makes a lot of sense to me to like start um, dedicating more time to that. Yeah. Um, and there's that, and like doing uh, like random things, like t-shirt designs, mm-hmm. like poster designs for like different people. Yeah, which is all part of that package, mm-hmm. and and part of the ways that you sort of have to make that art degree valuable these days that as art schools start to take on more and more students and the market gets smaller and smaller for published work that there's a need to gravitate towards whatever channel is available that you can market your skills and still not quite get paid what they're (laughs) worth and I know because I know what I pay and it's not a lot and we, we pay what we can above other positions at, at, at the shop for people who work in the gallery because of the amount of graphic design that goes into it. But also that I've always been really cool about saying, you know, if I only had you here to do stuff that I needed you to do, it would be like two hours here, two hours there, three hours there. So we always, I've always said, hey, if you have freelance work, you can do it here because I'd rather have you do it here than lose you to another job because you can't pay your bills and the amount of hours that we get to give you. <laughs> And, you know, as this last year has been really especially punishing on art galleries and comic book shops and the types of of retail businesses that, you know, supply some type of art to the public, that it's been even rougher, I think, for professionals who are emerging with their degrees in the last couple of years. If they didn't go into animation jobs, it's it's sink or swim, Mm -hmm. it's feast or famine, you get work and then you don't get work, it's hard to turn stuff down, but... Now you do actually have a little bit more time to be working on on sequential stuff and on comics. And with, you know, shows like the Printed Matter show that's this weekend in, in Los Angeles, there's a attention that gets put on zines because a lot of fine artists end up doing zines at the Printed Matter show. So sometimes you'll have a table of people who are just comic book professionals that that work as journeyman illustrators for Marvel or DC that have their personal work that they put out or it's guys that have, you know, a one comic deal with with Image and they've got their comics at their table with the other stuff that they do. And then next to them, you've got someone who's got an MFA from Yale who is exhibited by Gagosian 
who is doing a talk with the director of LACMAR, Amoka, MoMA, in chairs across from the, the table, the very stretch table that these comic book guys are at, and then next to them at the same set of, of convention-style tables are well-known fine artists who are just kind of sitting down. Maybe they're not sitting down at their table and someone's selling their work for them, but oftentimes they're all there and you get this great cross-pollination of different types of self-published work. And there's a lot of photographers that are doing self, self-published stuff. And sometimes it's super fancy, ultra deluxe, amazing art books. Sometimes it's very much like a fanzine. The prices of stuff can vary widely. Yeah. You know, from mm-hmm. a buck to a couple thousand. And so when you go to these shows and when you walk through these these fairs, and especially the Printed Matter Fair and the LA Fine Art Book Fair, do you buy stuff too? Yeah, if I have like the money too, like of course. <laughs> like I need like uh yeah, I try to go um usually like I'll probably like know a few people that like friends that have tables there. So I try mm-hmm. to go and support my friends first. Mm-hmm. Um and then just try to absorb everything. There's like hundreds of tables, so um, yeah, I definitely try to buy stuff. Probably not the $2,000 book. But. Yeah. What <laughs> I find about those shows, and, and ZineFest is great too, and ZineFest will be coming up later this year in LA, and I've I've been very good friends with some of the people that are the principals behind that, including uh, Simon Satello, who was a gallery assistant at Billy Shire Fine Arts, which was our the other gallery that the owner of La Luz de Jesus had for quite a while in, in Culver City. And she was working at Last Bookstore downtown. I just had gave a, a comic book lecture at, at Last Bookstore. They're going to be doing an Image Comics reunion, I guess, as, as part of the 25th anniversary of Image Comics. And so her connection to just her friends, and she went to Otis, and it was just J.T. Steiny's class and some kids thinking, hey, we know a lot of people that are doing these zines because JT's and Carter's to do these zines. We should have like this one place where we all get together and sell our zines. And that sort of DIY aesthetic of like, hey, let's let's get this in front of people really blew up. They got too big too fast and did not know how to handle the infrastructure of getting that big. And that's a problem that, that success can bring. Hey, we should all have these problems. But with the Printed Matter Fair, you have a former gallery director, uh, someone who ran Otre, which was a pop surrealism gallery in, I believe, Melbourne in Australia. And after he closed his gallery, he moved to New York and decided to start up this kind of fine art book fair there. And it took off and he started doing it in LA and the LA one is even bigger than the New York one. But the quality of stuff is incredible. It is one of those fairs where it's I understand now as an adult man what it's like to be a 13-year-old kid at Comic-Con, that you walk by stuff and you're like, oh, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And I'm looking at at stuff that you've got this amazing Dutch printer who does this this new one-volume zine every year that they release. And it's it's thick. It's it's like a a two-inch thick book, and it's only 20 bucks. And I'm thinking, how can they even afford to produce this? you know, for, for 20 bucks. It's, it's mammoth. And there, it's always a different theme and it's usually f- photography based. But for every table like them, there there's like dozens of tables like that that just have really amazing stuff. And it, it's like I say, it's my favorite fair to go to because I actually, I spend a lot of time. I walk by each table and I'm, I'm making decisions and I'm going back to buy stuff that I looked at. It's, it's really a feast for the eyes. 
but it's sort of a and not everything is super expensive but there there certainly is, is stuff that is super expensive you can easily blow thousands of dollars there <laughs> yeah and leave and think oh my god i just spent thousands of dollars like i can't believe i just did that like <laughs> It, it it's sort of it's which is testament to the fact that it, that it's high quality stuff, but I guess the reason why I'm addressing that is that with what you're doing with with your comic and and with the zine stuff that you're working on, you've got tons of friends that you went to art school mm-hmm. with that are doing the same stuff. There's zines are becoming a thing again. You like you go into bookstores and there are zine sections. They're sort of in the way that albums have eclipsed um, digital downloads in this past year for the first time ever actually because when digital downloads became a thing vinyl was already dead and cds were the format that zines may be becoming that new kind of comic book thing where it's a a small affordable generally soft cover publication it might not be monthly but a lot of times zines come out with a regular publishing schedule and because it's so much different and because it's such a fascination and there's such an eye towards it right now, it may be at that point where it's starting to hit that 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 area we can say, this might eclipse comics in a year or two. Like it could happen, even though the comic industry is driven by multimedia conglomerates that publish, you know, there's there's two main publishers and then there's two side publishers and back and then everything else is independent and, and doesn't do well as a comic book. Those same independent comics become digest size, become zines, and they do fabulously well in bookstores. And it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that stuff. And who are some of the, the classmates that you went to school with that have been doing what you do and are kind of self-publishing on a small scale, of course, but um, you know, producing their own work and and hitting these fairs and doing these types of things. People, the first people that come to mind is Edward Cushenberry. I mean, he, he's a photographer, but he also does a lot of illustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think oh, there's so many. Um, like I have a like a whole group of friends that um, like are in like one like art collective, but. Uh, I think They're going to kill you if you don't I drop know. their names on a podcast. Hurts, Lita. <laughs> I can't remember their last names. Uh, um, Joya, Joya Licorice. Actually, I have a friend, Jaya, who has um, this magazine, Compound Butter, mm-hmm. uh, that's been really popular uh, lately. Yeah. And a lot of times at the in the last term or second to last term at Art Center specifically, students will be required to make a book. And that book mm-hmm. can take any form. It can look like anything. A lot of times kids will spend $300 to make one edition of this perfectly bound book, which is just really a graded project. And then people like me come in and look at this work as sort of and judge it as whether or not we're going to work with them artistically. And of course, these are two different things. Getting graded for a project is not going to be the type of work that I want to see as a consistent mm-hmm. artist. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with a versatility versus a specialization. But smart people will be like oh this is my project and here's my zine you know and you get to look yeah. at at the zine it's like oh wow this is really cool and so like, yeah i know i want to do sequential or i want to do this and and it gives them an excuse to show this other stuff that they feel they would have rather have handed in but they knew that they had to get a grade yeah yeah <laughs> and that sets people up to be able to well to have to actually not just to be able to have to figure out how to publish something 
And that's that's a good skill. That's that's a really cool thing to use as a taking off point. So hit me with some some social media. Where can people find you? Where can they see your work? Um, I'm on Instagram at Teviku. Um, I have a website, teviku.com. Spell it. T-E-V-Y-K-H-O-U. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your your comic? Oh, um, I have two comics. There's Danger Wolf uh, and Safety Bunny, which I didn't write, but I did il- illustrate both of them. You can find them on Etsy, and there's a link on my website to them. And I'm working on another one called Space Punk, which is something that I wrote and illustrating currently. Excellent. Well, hey, thanks for joining me. Hope I didn't put you on the spot by saying, hey, welcome to work. Now we're going on a field trip. You're going to be on my podcast. I thought we were going to the zoo. <laughs> we, we sort of are. We sort of are at the zoo. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of Podsequentialism. I hope you've enjoyed it. I encourage you to seek out the work of Tevi Koo. I also want to drop some other um, cool places that I think you all should visit, uh, not the least of which is La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where I am the gallery director the birthplace of lowbrow and pop surrealism. It's also inside the Wacko Soap Plant Superstore where you can get uh, everything from one of the widest selections of blind box toys to uh, craft soaps and just tchotchkes and art books and everything else. And uh, there's really no other single place in the world like it. And Gallery 30 South, which is uh, my wife's new endeavor, um, spelled out gallery, the number 30 South. It's in Pasadena. Uh, it's a different type of curation for Pasadena in that it is a sort of fine art hub where we're contacting people to put on art exhibitions that you may not think of immediately as quote-unquote artists, but that as we broaden the idea and bring into the, the fold the fact that performers, actors, directors, musicians are artists in their own fields that they probably have cross-pollination of their interests. So we'll be hopefully doing shows with people like Kenneth Anger. um, And I know I have a show booked with Carlos Grasso, who is the person who developed and designed the Eraserhead movie poster for David Lynch and just about every single product that went in and out of IRS records throughout the 80s. IRS, of course, one of the most influential record labels for... Um, British punk and ska and alternative on the rise in America. And there's also shows with uh, Doss House, who are at the LA Art Show recently, where they do these installations of cut paper that are absolutely incredible. And I could go on and on, but I want you to visit the website. So uh, subscribe, go to 30, gallery30south.com. Tell them Matt Kennedy sent you. And uh, last but not least, I want to give a shout out to my friends and collaborators in the Panic Collective. That is Panic with a K. They have a show up at 30 South right now. It's a sort of, I guess what would you call it, a retrospective in a way, but it's a collection of different bodies of work, including some of the body of work that was at the Houston Museum of Drawing uh, pretty much all summer going into winter of this past year and some of the band artworks that were created for different museums and refused, and the very first bodies of work with certain takeaways. So you've got the ceramic cassettes and T-shirts that are affordable, which gives everybody who wants to support, you know, sort of more challenging aspects of contemporary art an opportunity to feel like a patron by only spending $25 instead of spending, you know, maybe five, $6,000. So again, check out all those places. And of course, look for pod sequentialism online and um, especially on social media at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q and pod sequentialism on Facebook. Again, this has been Matt Kennedy and I want to thank you again for listening. I love doing the show. I love hearing from you guys and uh, the lineup for this year is going to be filled with a lot of surprises. So see you back here again soon. 
Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.